Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Hello and welcome to today's show. Today we're going to look at scientific evidence that heavily favors a young world, which may surprise many of you. I'm going to be using information from a presentation that Dr. Russell Humphreys, a Ph.D. physicist, has been using for many years as he has collected data related to what the scientific evidence actually shows. Now, why is this a subject that is of interest to the Bible? It's because the Bible is actually involved in how old the world is. Taken at face value, what the Bible says is very clear. And it's not just Genesis that says this. Of course, Genesis chapter 1 talks about creation in six days, and the days are defined as morning and evening, just ordinary, regular days. Even the theologians who disagree that it is a historical account of a six-day creation almost universally admit that the language in Scripture implies that. They then turn around, and because science has convinced them it can't be true, they interpret it differently. But the language is pretty clear, and it's not just Genesis. For example, Exodus 20.11, right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, it says, For in six days Jehovah made the heavens and the earth. And the context is ordinary days. It, it compares that to our work week of working six days and resting one. So Scripture is involved in this, and if we take it at face value, it implies the world is young. So this question of age is not just an abstract academic question at all, but it directly relates to how reliable is the Bible. And again, it's not just the Old Testament. It's not just Genesis. The authors in the New Testament and even Jesus himself make statements that clearly show that they believe the events of the early chapters of Genesis, such as creation and the fall and the flood, are in fact history that there was a real Adam and Eve, etc. So this is a very important subject. If there is strong evidence that the world is young, and that's what I'm going to show you, then that helps people to be able to trust the Bible. So that's the real purpose of looking at this. So first thing we need to do is talk about how is it that science claims to calculate an age for the Earth. Now, Dr. Humphreys has been collecting data for over 25 years on this subject, and in looking at hundreds of physical processes, he only knows of a few dozen, radiometric dating being the primary one, that seem to favor a world billions of years old. However, those are the processes that you always hear about in the news media and that are emphasized constantly in books, etc. But there are hundreds of processes that favor a younger world. So how do we go about resolving the apparent conflict? Well, just on the surface of it, it makes more sense scientifically to start off with a hypothesis that the majority of the data is correct, and that would imply a young Earth, and that the minority of the data that implies an old Earth may be misunderstood. We're going to concentrate on the 90% of the processes that indicate a young Earth for this particular presentation, and the first thing we need to do is explain how these work and some important information about these processes. Each one of these techniques involves looking at something going on in the world today, measuring rates at which things are occurring, and then doing some extrapolation back into the past. Now, a first very important point to understand about this is that each one of these particular processes 
only puts an upper limit on age, not a lower limit. So each technique is only able to tell us a maximum age, not a minimum age. So you can have two techniques that give different answers, but that does not mean they contradict. If process one gives an upper limit of 200 million years and process two 10,000 years, that doesn't mean they contradict. Both techniques agree that the true age can't be greater than 200 million years, but process two actually limits it further to no greater than 10,000 years, but that's consistent with process one also. Process one effectively says, hey, I can live with that. On another show, we'll look at some of the details of the techniques that calculate an old Earth, such as radiometric dating. But on this show, we're simply going to focus on some of the examples of these young world processes. Welcome back. On today's show, we're looking at some of the physical processes that would calculate a young age for the Earth. We're going to look at simply five examples of this. There are hundreds. We'll look at galaxies, comets, sediments, sea salt, and people. Now, stars revolve around the center of galaxies. And in accordance with the laws of Newton's mechanics, the inner stars go faster than the outer stars. So the spirals tend to wrap themselves up like a clock spring when you wind it. In our own galaxy, the observed speeds are so fast that the spiral would wind up and become featureless disk in only 200 million years. The same dilemma applies to other galaxies too. So our own Milky Way galaxy, which is supposed to be about 10 billion years old, is shown by this physical evidence to actually be less than 0.2 billion years old. That would be a discrepancy of a factor of 50. However, the data is consistent with it being much younger as well. If, in fact, God created the galaxies as spirals to begin with, they could be much younger than millions of years, and it would be perfectly consistent with the physical data. All right, let's look at the next item, which is comets. Comets are quite dramatic to view. Well, what is it that we actually see? It's the long, glowing tail of the comet, which is actually material from the comet itself being blasted off of it by pressure from the sun. In fact, so much material is blasted off from the comet that it loses 5 to 10% of its total mass each time it orbits close to the sun. Some comets have even been seen to completely disintegrate and break into pieces as they go around the sun. At any rate, we know that they can't last more than 100,000 years. In fact, some of these short-period comets wouldn't last more than 10,000 years. So how is it that there are comets left after 5 billion years, if those years are real? Now, this has long been recognized as a dilemma, and the proposed solution from the atheist community is the following. Since we know there's no creator, and we're completely convinced the Earth and the solar system are billions of years old, and we know these comets can only last a few thousand years, it must be the case that there are other comets waiting to replace them. So it's been proposed that there is the Oort cloud of comets, named for Jan Oort, who came up with the idea originally, just sitting waiting to be bumped out of their frozen storage into orbit through our solar system and around the sun. Now, there's a few interesting facts about the Oort cloud. One is, 
there's absolutely no observational evidence for it. Secondly, it relies upon fortuitous luck that some object, some wandering star, happens to impact this invisible, unseen Oort cloud gravitationally and pop some small number of these comets out and drop them into orbit to replace the short-period comets that we know are disappearing. The other major problem is that even if it did exist, and again, there's no evidence for it, it would not produce comets with the proper orbits. This is a great example of the principle that I can always make up a story to explain away data that is inconsistent with my current belief. Now, our solar system is supposed to be 5 billion years old, but the observational data from actual short-period comets would imply that it's less than 10,000 years old, and the data is consistent with the idea that it could be even younger than that. Welcome back. As we move on to look at another measurable process that's ongoing right now, which implies that the world is young. Our oceans are constantly having mud dumped into them from the continents. Rain, rivers, wind. We have a constant influx of dust and sediments into the ocean, and the rate at which this is occurring is estimated at 25 billion tons per year. Now, the only way known to get mud out of the oceans is by plate tectonic subduction, that is, the seafloor sliding under the continents. And when the rate at which subduction is occurring is measured, it's determined that we can only remove 1 billion tons of seafloor sediment per year. So sediment is moving into the oceans at 25 billion tons per year and is being removed at 1 billion tons per year. When you then look at the total amount of sediment contained within the oceans, you can calculate that it would take only 12 million years to build up the current amount of mud in the oceans. Now, the oceans are supposed to be 3 billion years old in the evolutionary scenario. If this process has been going on like this for 3 billion years, there would be miles and miles of mud on the bottom of the oceans, and there isn't. So let's sum it up. The evolutionary story says the oceans are 3 billion years old. The physical process of seafloor sediments accumulating says they cannot be more than 12 million years old, but they could be much younger. Since we're talking about the oceans, let's look at one other process that affects the oceans and has been measured, the accumulation of salt in the oceans. About 450 million tons per year of sodium enter the ocean from rivers and other sources, but only about 27% of it gets out. The rest of the salt just keeps accumulating year after year. Now, we see this occur in lakes such as the Dead Sea and the Great Salt Lake and also the Salton Sea in Southern California. However, the oceans aren't salty like that. In fact, Dr. Humphreys likes to say they're not salty enough to suit the taste of old earthers. Now, evolutionists have been trying to resolve this problem for over a century, and they've tried to come up with additional ways to either reduce the input of sodium or increase the output. So back in 1990, Dr. Stephen Austin, a Ph.D. geologist, and Dr. Humphreys, a physicist, got together and wrote a technical paper on this subject. And what they did is they looked at all of the inputs and outputs and juggled the potential values for those and gave evolution its absolute best opportunity. What do I mean by giving it an opportunity? 
based on today's measured inputs and outputs, the amount of salt in the ocean would have accumulated in about 38 million years, so that would say the ocean cannot be older than 38 million years. However, they took the values for the inputs and outputs and minimized all the inputs and maximized all the outputs. So give it the absolute maximum chance to remove sodium from the ocean and get the longest possible age. And this age calculates out to 62 million years. Now, of course, this date is consistent with the oceans being much younger than that. And in fact, in the biblical model, there was a rather significant event called Noah's Flood, which would have dumped enormous amounts of runoff into the ocean in a very short period of time. So when that's taken into account, it's quite believable that the oceans are only thousands of years old. However, from the scientific evidence of salt accumulating in the oceans, they can't possibly be older than 62 million years, and yet the evolution scenario says they're 3 billion years old. Now, since this information was published 20-some years ago, evolutionists have had much opportunity to critique it, point out problems with it, find a workable way around it to match the conclusion that they believe, which is an age of 3 billion years, no one has been able to do so. So this is an interesting example where the scientific evidence does not support the evolutionist scenario and age. Welcome back. We've been looking at scientific processes that don't match the old age that evolution claims for the world, and in fact are consistent with the young age that the Bible implies. So far we've looked at galaxies and the way spiral galaxies wind up, at short period comets and how they disintegrate as they travel around the sun, as well as how sediment accumulates in our oceans and how sodium or salt accumulates in our oceans. All of these processes are consistent with the young world and inconsistent with the age that we've all been told the Earth actually is. So let's move on and look at another process, which is perhaps even simpler to understand. Supposedly, for about a 100,000 years, humans lived in a Stone Age-type environment, and there was supposed to be a population of perhaps a million individuals. So let's think about it. Today, a generation is approximately 25 years. So about every 25 years, people have children and it takes that long for their children to go up. So that's a generation. Well, in the 100,000 years of the Stone Age people, if you divide that by 25 years per generation, you figure out there should be about 4,000 generations. Now let's ask the question, as to how many people would have died across these 4,000 generations. Well, it's a pretty easy calculation. In order to keep the population at 1 million, every generation, 1 million people have to die. With 4,000 generations, that implies 4 billion people died. So there are 4 billion bodies. There should be billions of Stone Age graves, and yet... There's only thousands that have ever been found. So this data actually fits the biblical scenario quite well. It implies the Stone Age was not 100,000 years long, but was actually less than 500 years long. 
and that mankind is young. So, to sum up the particular examples we've looked at of the hundreds of processes that imply a young earth, the five we looked at all imply young age. Galaxies and comets imply that the heavens are young. Sediments and sea salt accumulation in the oceans imply the earth is young. And the lack of graves for Stone Age people implies mankind is young. Okay, so we've shown several instances of physical processes that, when rates are examined closely, contradict the notion of a billions-of-year-old Earth, and in fact are consistent with and imply a young Earth. Well, how does this data get dealt with by the scientific community? Well, first, in general, it's most of the time simply ignored. Rather than try to deal with this difficult data, what usually happens is old earthers will simply point to something else that they think absolutely proves beyond any doubt the old earth. One common such element is to point to sections of the geologic column and claim that the accumulation rates prove these took an enormous amount of time to be produced. Alan Hayward is one such scientist, an old earther, who wrote a fairly influential book a few years ago. And in this book, he uses exactly this technique. He points to the Haymond Rock Formation in the United States, describes it as almost a mile thick, it covers a very large area, and contains more than 30,000 alternating layers of shale and sandstone. Now, Hayward assumed conventional geological interpretation of this and claimed that the deposition of the mud occurred as following, quote, Shale is made of compacted clay. As most readers will have noticed, clay consists of exceedingly fine particles which take a long time to settle in water. Turbulence keeps them in suspension, and consequently clay will only settle in calm water. Haywood then applies these ideas to disparage the biblical flood account. Quote, How did the flood bring in a thin layer of sand and deposit it over a large area, then bring in a thin layer of clay, and all this to settle quietly, all in a matter of minutes, and then repeat the whole performance 15,000 times? He then mocks the scientific standing of flood geologists. It seems rather obvious there's only one way in which a series of events could possibly occur. God would have to direct and control the whole process miraculously to achieve this result. Comments such as Hayward's aren't even unusual. Uh, Daniel Wonderly is another writer who has mocked young earth creationists as being uninformed and ignorant. Consider the title of his book, Neglect of Geologic Data, Sedimentary Strata Compared with Young Earth Creationist Writings. Wonderly's writings were actually even posted on the American Scientific Affiliation website. Now, the ASA describes itself as a fellowship of Christians in science, who have a common fidelity in the Word of God and a commitment to integrity in the practice of science. Wonderly reasons just like Hayward. In chapter 2 of his book, he describes an immense thickness of sediments in the Appalachians and argues that this amount of sediment could not possibly have been deposited in the year-long flood. Now, he says this isn't because there's too much sediment, but because the deposition rates are too slow. His arguments hinge on the assumed deposition rates. As he writes, most of the shale and mudstone strata were deposited in fairly deep waters in inland seas and their rate of deposition was probably 
no more rapid than the slower rates we have cited for continental shelves. Now listen to Wanderley describe in detail events that no one ever observed. Even when a body of water is tranquil, at least many hours are required for the settling out of a single clay particle to become part of a shale or mudstone deposit. Even if the suspended clay particles have undergone flocculation, which is clumping, the water has to be essentially tranquil as the small clumps of flocculated clay are not nearly so dense as grains of sands. He concludes, one year just does not allow enough time for anything like the number of relatively quiet settling periods needed for the existing clay and mudstone layers. Okay, clearly Wanderley and Hayward are both totally dependent upon the assumed rate of deposition in the standard understanding in geology of how mudstone accumulates. Well, how good is that? Well, in 2007, a very interesting article appeared in the journal Science. Accretion of mudstone beds from migrating flocule ripples. This science article was written up in Physorg under the title, As Waters Clear, Scientists Seek to End a Muddy Debate. And it begins, Geologists have long thought muds will only settle when waters are quiet. But new research by Indiana University Bloomington and Massachusetts Institute of Technology geologists shows muds will accumulate even when currents move swiftly. Their findings appear in this week's Science. Jürgen Schreiber led the study documented in Science, and he wrote, Mudstones make up two-thirds of the sedimentary geological record. One thing we are very certain of is that our findings will influence how geologists and paleontologists reconstruct Earth's past. Wait a minute, you mean there might be problems with how they've reconstructed Earth's past thus far? Let's go on. Fizorg says, Previously, geologists had thought that constant rapid water flow prevented mud's constituents, silts and clays, from coalescing and gathering at the bottoms of lakes, rivers, and oceans. This has led to a bias, Schreiber explains, that wherever mudstones are encountered in the sedimentary rock record, they are generally interpreted as quiet water deposits precisely as Hayward and Wonderly did. Now listen closely, because this is actually funny. Schreiber said, But we suspected this did not have to be the case. All you have to do is look around. After the creek on our university's campus floods, you can see ripples on the sidewalks once the waters have subsided. Closely examined, these ripples consist of mud. Sedimentary geologists have assumed up until now that only sand can form ripples, and that mud particles are too small and settle too slowly to do the same thing. We just needed to demonstrate it, that it can actually happen under controlled conditions. The article describes their experiments and the mud flume they created, etc. Schreiber said, We found that mud beds accumulate at flow velocities that are much higher than what anyone would have expected. He also said, if anything, when organic matter is present in addition to mud, it enhances mud deposition from fast-moving currents. Now, do you think there just might have been some organic matter during the flood? Just a few plants here and there, you know, like our entire coal deposits? Schreiber goes on, in many ancient mudstones, you see not only deposition, but also erosion and rapid redeposition of mud all in the same place. The erosive features are at odds with the notion that the waters must have been still all or most of the time. We need a better explanation. He's certainly right about that. Wanderley, Hayward, and all the other old earthers 
are using out-of-date, incorrect science to prove to you that the Earth must be as old as they say it is. Furthermore, consider just how obvious it was that the old understanding of how mud settled out of water was completely wrong. The evidence was all around us every time it rained. Absolutely amazing. The Apostle Paul knew what he was talking about when he wrote, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. As always, when examined closely and carefully, the evidence is consistent with the plain understanding of the Bible. Thank you.